Welcome to The Fundamentals, a podcast focused on the incredible research and researchers here at Michigan Medicine. I'm your host, Kelly Malcolm. And I'm Jordan Gobig. In this week's episode, we'll be talking about the science behind new drug development and learn more about how UM researchers are using their expertise to develop new medications, including ones designed for people experiencing an overdose. I'm a big fan of this discussion because our guest really explains how basic science, which deals with understanding the fundamentals of how our bodies work, leads to drugs that help keep us healthy. So I got curious about other Michigan medicine researchers working in this area, and I found an interesting article about the molecule A20 and its possible link to scleroderma. Totally different disease and subject area, but highlighting research at the molecular level felt very on brand for this episode. And a study that stuck out to me centered on changes in labeling rules from the Food and Drug Administration, which helped keep people out of the hospital and avoid potentially deadly liver injury from opioid acetaminophen combination drugs like Vicodin and Percocet. We'll provide links to the full articles and info about our featured guest in the show notes. Now let's get on to our guest. Today's guest is Dr. Jess Anand. She is a research assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacology at the University of Michigan Medical School and a co-chair of the Pharmacology's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Her work focuses on developing new molecules to treat different medical needs like pain with reduced addiction risk, overdose, and potentially mood problems like anxiety and depression. Right now, the current main thrust of her research is developing new overdose medications. Welcome. Thanks. I appreciate you having me here. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here today. Yeah, happy to finally meet you in person. Um, so we're going to start off with some really basic questions, like how did you get into studying opioids? So I have always liked where two different fields meet each other. Um, I actually started with chemistry. Um, I had a really great chemistry teacher in high school. Um he blew something up for each section, so I thought science was really exciting. It turns out you're not supposed to have explosions in the lab on a regular basis. Um, and while I really enjoyed chemistry, I I didn't want to just do chemistry for chemistry's sake. I wanted to use it to address problems in, in people's lives. And so where chemistry and biology interface ended up being really interesting for me. And so my degree is actually in something called medicinal chemistry, which is looking at ways to make new molecules, new drugs, to treat some sort of unmet medical need. In graduate school, I tried out a bunch of different things. I worked in a cancer lab for a little bit. Um, but I was really interested in the brain and how the brain works. And opioids actually change a lot of different things in how we perceive the world around us. So they can change how we feel pain. They can change our mood states, like you mentioned. So that can be anything from euphoria, which makes people addicted to things, to the flip side. So anxiety or um, dysphoria, feeling bad. And these things are not, these, these systems are not essential for life. You can knock them out in an animal and the animal's just fine, but they do sort of fine tune so many parts of our lives. I thought that was really cool that we could maybe use these as handles to make people's lives better. Really very interesting. Um, so as I was diving into your research and, and what you study, um, and before we started recording, I made fun of myself for not being a good chemist. Um, and one of the words that jumped out to me when I was looking at what you research um, was the word fentalog. That's not a word I was familiar with, but it was if 
you spend any more time than apparently I ever had reading a little bit of, uh, you know, about fentanyl, um, you will see that word in like the second sentence. So I would love for you to explain to me what is a fentalog um, and why it's important to identify and understand them. Uh, so fentalog is uh, just smushing two words together. So it's a fentanyl analog. So fentanyl um, really refers to one specific molecule, but that molecule has lots of cousins that look a lot like it at, at the chemical level. So if you look at their structures, they look very, very similar. You can tell they're related. They're a whole family, um, but they're not exactly the same molecule. So we say they are analogs. Fentanyl analog becomes fentalog. And why is it important to, to identify those? So in 2017, um, a lot of the drugs that were found in illegal samples, like from search and seizure, um, the Drug Enforcement Agency, or um, law enforcement, was finding these mixes of fentalogs, and they weren't technically illegal yet. So only the, the parent in that family, fentanyl, was illegal. And then if you made a tiny change to the structure, the, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, hadn't caught up yet and hadn't called, declared that they were illegal too. And so these compounds were technically not illegal in 2017, um, but nobody knew what they did, right? People were just making tiny changes to the structure and hoping they did the same thing because it wasn't technically illegal, so they could sell them for profit. Um, but no one knew what they were. No one knew what they did. No one knew if they were dangerous. No one knew if they were potentially helpful. No one knew if law enforcement needed to be careful when, we were, when they were handling them or dealing with them. And so what I saw as a need was to find, find out what they do and if we can sort of make predictions like, oh, we know if we put this thing over here, it does this. So anything that has this same change will probably do the same thing. So we could make predictions about what's safe or what's potentially useful or what's dangerous to handle. So you mentioned that these substances kind of fine tune um, behaviors or mm -hmm. can you kind of talk a little bit more about that? So I think people know people take opioids to alleviate pain and sometimes to get high. Um, what are really the differences between um, the drugs that we think about on the street and these substances in the body? Because I, I believe there's substances that kind of yes. exist in your body that act like these Yeah, that's drugs. true. So there are um, targets in the body that both the neurotransmitters, the things in your body, your body makes, and these drugs that people take, either for medical reasons, right? Like people do take fentanyl and morphine. And, you know, if you've ever had your teeth out or had a surgery, maybe you had codeine. Um, they all hit the same target in your body. And so that's called a receptor. In this case, they are opioid receptors. There's three of them. Um, and your body has these receptors and then makes neurotransmitters to interact with them normally. So um, I don't personally like running, but some people do. And some people talk about this runner's high, right, where they're pushing their body really hard and they're like getting in the groove and they get this sort of good feeling. I've never felt good while running. <laughs> um, what you're doing is your body's releasing endorphins, which are the neurotransmitters that bind to the opioid receptors. Um, they also happen in other situations, like if you are running away from a bear or something and you sprain your ankle, you can probably still keep running on that ankle because your body's like, you can't deal with the pain right now. You got you to gotta keep going. So it, they're also sometimes released in stressful situations to sort of help you get through. Um, and they can um, modulate your, your mood in other maybe fake scary situations. So like that rush that people get from skydiving or roller coasters is the same sort of system in your body 
or anytime you want to keep doing the same thing, right? So like I personally like chocolate cake and you kind of get a good feeling when you eat it. You, you want to go eat it again. It's that same system that's sort of telling you, you can do this. Just push through or it feels kind of good um, to do this thing. Thank you for explaining that. You have clearly a, a, a wonderful way to describe things. That makes sense to me um, as, as somebody who both does enjoy running and chocolate cake more. <laughs> um, no, thank you so much. That was a really great explanation um, of everything so far. And kind of going back to um, you explaining pentalogs to me and um, in the area you study and thinking about, you know, the, the, like we know that these things are are bad and you're studying those and there are lots of reasons why we need to better understand them um, to you know help the police and help legislation and things like that but there's also that therapeutic side that you mentioned yep. briefly and is that an area that you're currently um, studying and is your lab focused and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah so um, to talk a little bit about that we need to introduce a, another couple ideas. So I said there are these receptors right that are in your body that um, both the drugs that you take and those neurotransmitters in your in your body bind to. And they're kind of like dimmer switches. So you can turn them all the way on, um, and that would give you the maximum pain relief, that would give you the maximum euphoria, um, that would also give you the maximum respiratory depression. That's actually why they're dangerous, is they stop your breathing. Um, but you could also turn it on part of the way, right? So you don't have to turn it all the dial all the way up to 11. You could, you could just turn it on part of the way, and that could be a therapeutic use for the pain relief, right? So we do have people who have chronic pain that they're suffering every day. And right now, opioids are our gold standard for treating that. Um, or, you know, if you have some sort of surgery or something, that is what we give people to help them deal with that pain. So that is a, a legitimate medical need. Um, you could turn it on even a smaller part of the way, just a little bit above, you know, all the way off. And that could help somebody wean off of drugs if they've started taking them and need them to feel normal. They've become tolerant to it. They need it to feel like they can get through their day, you give them just a, a little bit and that will help them step down off of it. So that's similar to like a nicotine patch or nicotine gum for to get people to quit smoking. Same thing, you can give someone just a little bit to help them stay off of the drugs. You can also turn that receptor all the way off. So that's actually called an antagonist um, and that would prevent someone from overdosing. So if you have someone who's taken too much, they've turned the dial all the way up, they've stopped breathing, right, that's dangerous, you can go and give them something that binds to the same exact spot in your body but blocks it instead of turning it on, and that should rescue them um, and, and prevent them from dying. So depending on how we get the chemicals, the molecules to interact with these receptors, you can have different uses for them. So would that be something like Narcan? Exactly, okay. yes. Okay. And so that's actually a really interesting point. So I work on fentanyl analogs, right? And fentanyl has is in a different family than Narcan is. So Narcan's in the same family as like heroin and morphine and Vicodin and like a lot of the, the more established drugs. Fentanyl's in its own family. And so we don't have anything that is in the same family as fentanyl that blocks the receptor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so that's actually something I'm working on developing, um, hoping that it would be better able to block a fentanyl overdose uh, than Narcan is. So Narcan right now wears off really quickly. Um, and sometimes that means that the the thing that the person overdosed on is still in their body, even after the Narcan has worn off. And so that becomes dangerous the second time around because there's nothing to, to block that receptor anymore. Everyone knows there's an epidemic right now. Um, and I guess I'm curious about how the opioid epidemic has affected your work as a chemist. Like, has it had an effect mm -hmm. on what you've decided to study? 
Um, yeah, actually. So I started with my graduate work trying to make painkillers that were less addictive. Um, so something that would treat the pain and would help people feel better, but wouldn't make them feel so good that they'd want to keep taking it, right? So like the pain relief without that euphoria, that high. Um, but because there is this epidemic, right, a lot of people are dying, I've actually pivoted. And now I'm looking at rescue treatments, so things that would prevent people from dying. Um, the cause is, you know, still complicated, right? People take drugs for a lot of reasons. Usually it's because that feels like the best option available to them. Um, and that's like a much bigger societal problem. But like from a chemistry angle, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, well, at the very least, we can keep people from dying now and then, you know, work on the societal stuff over time. Mm -hmm. What has been the biggest surprise you've encountered through your work about the way that the body responds to opioids? The biggest surprise? I don't know. The body is amazing. It does all <laughs> kinds of wild stuff, right? Um, and I think part of it is that it, your body adapts to what you give it, right? So something on day one will not be the same as taking it every day for a year a lot of the time. And we don't really know a lot about Everyone's different. How about that, right? So the way you, if we both start with the same dose and take the same dose every day for a year, at the end of that year, we might be in different spots. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know a lot about why, <laughs> right? Because yeah. it's, it's not just that one receptor that I was talking about where the drug interacts with your body because there's lots of stuff in your body that like your liver breaks things down, right? So that you don't have toxins build up in your body and your liver and my liver are probably different. And then there's this layer between my brain and the rest of the body that protects it because you know your brain is delicate. And the layer between my brain and the rest of my body and yours is maybe different. And this variation is just wild. Yeah, we hear a lot um, from having people in here mm -hmm. about like that need for the personalization of medicine and therapeutics yep. in, in many areas. And so it sounds like there is that similar mm -hmm. thing is going on in your field yep. as well. Exactly. But the hard part is if you're in an emergency situation, right, you're in an ambulance, I got to make a decision right now. So what, what do we offer people that will work for the most number of people right now? Um, we don't have time to be like, oh, can I just like, <laughs> can I just analyze your genome real quick? Like, just, right. just hold on. <laughs> yeah, there's a little sci-fi movie us. Like, mm -hmm. let me put this in a little box. And yeah, very interesting. So I know you said you're looking at rescue treatments for fentanyl. Um, how long does it really take to go from the basic science, which you do, mm -hmm. to an eventual treatment like that? It so if you're starting all the way from like an idea. So I had an idea, right? Maybe I don't have anything other than an idea. I've just got this, you know, little dream. Um, that can take quite a while. So that can take, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I'm a little farther down the pipeline than that. So I have um, what's called a hit. So I have something that meets many of the criteria that we're interested in, but maybe not all of them. And so some of them are scientific concerns, right? Like, does it target the right receptor in your body? Does it target the right thing? Does it do the right thing at that receptor? Does it actually block it as opposed to, you know, turning it all the way on? So I've got something that does that. But then you know, remember how I said, like, your liver breaks things down? Well, can it escape the liver long enough to do its job? Or will the liver break it immediately and then it, it's gone from your body? Um, those are all, like, scientific concerns. So the, 
pharmacodynamics is a word I'm going to introduce. That's what it does at the receptor. And then pharmacokinetics is the rest of it. Does it get to the right place in your body? Does, you know, does it get metabolized? Does it get broken down? Does it get eliminated from your body rapidly? So that's like one set of concerns. The other set of concerns is all regulatory stuff. So will the FDA approve it? Do you have a packet that shows that it is not only efficacious, it does its job, but it's safe. It won't hurt the patients. Um, one of, I think, the most frustrating concerns is intellectual property. So I could have the perfect molecule that does exactly what I want to, but if it's not patentable, a company's not going to invest in it. Mm -hmm. And I am just an academic lab, right? So I don't have the capital. I don't have the money to do all of these large clinical trials and get something to market and then sell it to patients, right? Like I can't make millions and millions of doses. I need someone to buy this molecule from me. And if it's not patentable, it won't be profitable. And if it's not profitable, no one's going to buy the idea. So I think that is one of the most frustrating hurdles in getting a drug to market is that it needs to be commercially viable, not just do its job. And that's where it's good <laughs> to work at some place, a place like U of M that Indeed. is investing in opioid research. Yeah, how long have you been at the university? That's a complicated question. I actually did my graduate work here. So I was oh, a PhD okay. student. Um, in MedChem okay. first, and then I postdoced in pharmacology, and I went to the other end of the spectrum. So I did what's called behavioral pharmacology, where I, I checked in living organisms whether or not molecules work. Okay. And now I'm kind of in this in-between space um, in vitro pharmacology. Okay. So I started as a student in 2007. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've been here a while. Very cool. You're a good person to ask for racks. <laughs> <laughs> um, as somebody who's been here for a while and you're and you're working on these things and you're talking about these hurdles, what are the benefits to being at the University of Michigan to kind of help you overcome those hurdles? Are there collaborators here that yes. are doing this with you? Yes. Yeah, so uh, the University of Michigan has a huge uh, population of people that do opioid research. Um, you know, the... So remember, I was talking about those neurotransmitters your bodies make. Uh, one of those groups is called the encephalins. The woman who discovered those is actually here at the University of Michigan. Um, but there, there's a lot of people who do a lot of different kinds of research, both on um, drugs of abuse and opioids in particular. So there's a lot of people to go talk to, right? I can go down the hall. I'm at the Edward F. Domino Research Center, right? I can go down the hall and I can knock on somebody's door and I can say, hey, you know, Dr. Levitt, you specialize in breathing. I've got this really weird question about, you know, respiratory depression. Or I can go talk to somebody else who's, um, you know, a chemist who's got, who's ex-Pfizer, say, right? I can go knock on his door and say, hey, you know, I've got a really weird patent question because you used to work in industry. So there's a, a lot of great minds here. Mm -hmm. um, and the facilities are also really good, right? So we, we have a lot of cores here at U of M where I don't have to learn every single technique in the world. I can just go talk to the people that make vectors and say, hey, can you make me a vector? Or like, hey, can you make me a cell line? Um, I don't have to figure it out myself. I can have the idea and then go work with somebody. I've been at the university longer than six weeks, but I, I've only landed here. And it's been, I feel like I've heard that a lot and like not a cheesy way. Like collaboration mm -hmm. is a real word that's not just lightly thrown around here. And it's nice. It's really nice, right? Because not everywhere is collegial as yeah. we are here, right? So people do genuinely want to collaborate. It's not a super competitive environment, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. So are there any um, specific projects or publications that you have, you know, coming up? Any any people that have just been instrumental to, you know, your time here that you want to talk about or kind of give a shout out to? 
So I, my faculty mentor, Dr. John Trainer, he's actually the director of the Domino Center, and he's he's been great. He's um, pulled a lot of people in who work on either CNS, central nervous system, so brain stuff, um, or opioids in particular, and he's put together a really great group, so that's made it really easy to go find someone who has more expertise in the thing, or I get to be the expert sometimes, um, and people come knock on my door. But it's really nice that we have this this group. So as a basic scientist, what do you feel is basic science's role in addressing the opioid epidemic? Basic science is sort of the foundation for everything, right? So it's not flashy, right? We're over here in the corner asking why, poking it with a stick, like trying to figure out how do brains work? How do receptors work? How do bodies work, right? And so this kind of feeds into the question about how long it takes to get a drug to market. It takes a really long time, right? And so a lot of times when you think about new medications, you think about your doctor or your pharmacist or an EMT or, you know, someone actually giving a medication to a person in need. And that's important, right? And like the the social end of things, like supporting people so they can take their medications and they can take them on the schedule they're supposed to. Those are all important things, but that sort of glosses over the fact that somebody had to discover that medication and figure out what it did in your body and how it worked. And and that's not the flashy end, right? People like to see, you know, doctors in white coats rushing in and saving the day and saving someone's life. But that's not possible without the basic research. Um, and sometimes it's hard to translate, like, how basic research gets you to that end flashy point where you save someone's life with a white lab coat and, you know, a hero's cape or whatever. But I I do wish that there were a a clearer way to explain this. And so this is also partly on us as basic scientists that we have to explain why we're doing what we're doing. So my, my favorite example of like not doing a good job of explaining why you're doing what you're doing is there was a, a congresswoman a few years ago who was very upset. Her son had a rare disease and she was really frustrated that this lab was getting federal money to study fruit flies when they could be studying, you know, something to save her son. And this is where we as basic scientists fell down is that you can't make this up. The lab that she picked was studying genetics, and they were actually studying the gene that causes that rare disease in humans in fruit flies, because we can't ethically, you know, take human children and change their genes. That's not ethical, but we can take fruit flies and change their genes and see what happens. It makes a very similar disease, and then we can see, oh, if we give them these drugs, does it alleviate that? Does it make the the fruit flies better? And then, you know, you can kind of go from there. But that means that we as as basic scientists are not doing an adequate job communicating why we're doing what we're doing, right? I'm not just like in the basement having fun. (laughs) I'm like trying to actually figure out, they're called structure activity relationships, right? I'm trying to see if I change the structure of this molecule, do I change its activity? So instead of turning that light switch all the way on, can I turn it off so it blocks it and, and save somebody's life? Or can I turn it part of the way on to help somebody get clean, right? So like they're not going into withdrawal, they can get their life back. Like, can I, can I dial this up and down in a way? Which, you know, if I explained it badly, I'd be like, I don't know, I make a bunch of molecules and I see what they do, <laughs> right? That's not gonna get anybody engaged, but right. we have to sort of explain that this is the basics for, for what everything else is built on. And there's a lot of quote unquote failures, right? There's a lot of things that don't do what we expect them to but we can learn from it right. to do better next time. 
This is a good segue into my next question because you're really fantastic at providing examples that are very visual for someone like me who needs those sorts of things. And you've also introduced a couple of new words to me today. So I appreciate that you're expanding my vocabulary. Truly do appreciate that. Um, So I'd love to know, do you teach at all or mentor? Yeah, so I I do do some formal teaching. Right now, I, I teach a few sections of our graduate program in pharmacology. So we have a, an introductory course. Um, it's called 601, and so it's the class that everybody has to take, right? And so I teach a couple of sections in that. Um, and I do teach a little bit of our grant writing course for our graduate students so that they can you know, get funding to do their research. But I also do a lot of informal teaching. So I, I do a lot of mentoring in the lab. Um, I have a Uh, you know, a good-sized group of undergraduates. I think right now I've got six undergrads in the lab with me, um, a couple of techs, and some graduate students as well. And that's a lot less formal, right? We're at the bench. I'm sort of helping them work through how to design an experiment, how to interpret their results. Or, you know, if you forget your controls, then like, well, did it not work because the drug doesn't do anything? Or did it not work because you messed something else up and nothing worked? So sort of working through that process of making sure that we're doing the science correctly and that they can sort of plan things out. I do a lot of that. So mentoring is so important for young scientists, and I definitely want to touch on your work as a co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee for Pharmacology. What does that really mean, and why is it so important that we increase diversity and equity and inclusion? So we like to think of science as something like super cut and dried where there's only one right answer, right? And um, it's, it's not. It's like the, the parable of the people with the blindfolds and the elephant, right? So there's a bunch of blindfolded people and one person finds the tail and they're like, oh, an elephant is like a rope. And someone else finds the side. and Oh, an elephant's like a wall or they find the leg. An elephant's like a tree, right? So we're all sort of poking around in nature trying to figure out what it does because all of this stuff is so too small to see, right? And you can't really open up somebody's brain and look at the little receptors in there, right? Um, so the perspective we bring to problem solving and thinking and putting things together sort of changes how we interpret the little facts that we have, right? Because an elephant isn't a rope or a wall or a tree, it's an elephant, but you have to put all these pieces together to get the whole picture. And so you can do that with, you know, a diversity of techniques, right? You can ask the question in different ways. But a lot of it also relies on the the scientists themselves, like how do they think about things? So that can be diversity in training or just diversity in background, right? People are all different and they all think about things differently. And the more different minds you have in the room, the more likely you are to get different parts of the picture. And so making sure that we can give everyone the opportunity, right? So not everyone has to do science, right? It's okay if you're like, this is not my jam, I wanna go do something else, but I want everyone to have the opportunity to come and do science if they want to. And supporting that in the Department of Pharmacology includes making people feel like they are welcome and seen, right? So people are not just their identities, but it helps if you feel like you can you know, be safe and comfortable enough in a space to ask those questions that might, you know, lead to an entirely different way of thinking about something or to, you know, throw out that harebrained idea that might be garbage or might be a solution, right? And so you need to be 
safe enough and secure enough in yourself to do that, right? Because asking questions can make you look dumb and you have to be confident and safe enough in yourself to be like, it's okay, maybe it's dumb or maybe it's amazing. We won't know until we explore it. And so that's part of why I want to make sure that we make our trainees and our employees feel safe in the department to do that job. I'm kind of in awe of you. I'm very, very impressed. And I'm just so appreciative of all the things that you've taught me today. Um, I I am one of those people who did not do great in chemistry, didn't, you know, science wasn't something that I knew I was going to excel in. But I've always, I feel like, you know, hearing from you is one of the reasons I call myself a lifelong learner and like one of our intros. And it's because you, you make things interesting and you make things easy to understand. And I have a daughter and I kind of, look to you and everybody, people doing all types of things as being like her future role models when she's not 18 months old and just kind of destroying her house. And so I really appreciate that, you know, she can listen to this in 10 years and make fun of me and, but also learn something from you. Um, So thank you so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. The Fundamentals is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network and produced by the Michigan Medicine Department of Communication in partnership with the University of Michigan Medical School. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.